Welcome to Tech Vets, the podcast, a show dedicated to exploring the world of tech and cybersecurity through the eyes of industry leaders and ex-forces personnel. In this show, we're discussing digital poverty and whether cybersecurity and tech education should be added to the national curriculum. Joining me to discuss is a, a, a wide variety uh, of people, but with one aim in common. First of all, Tech UK President Jacqueline de Rochus, CBE, Chris Ensor, who's National Cybersecurity Centre Deputy Director of Cyber Growth, Bethan Smith, who's Executive Head Teacher at Daintree School in Surrey, and TechFet's James Murphy. So, can I start by asking you to just introduce yourselves and 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 tell the listeners uh, who who you are and what you do and can we start with Jacqueline please yes hello thank you for having me my name's Jacqueline Dorochus uh, president of Tech UK co-chair of the Institute of Coding and I am a non-exec director on a number of PLC boards and uh, I suppose I would describe myself as more of a tapas girl than a full English because I dip in and out of various jobs and roles and um, I'm a passionate advocate for diversity and inclusion uh, specifically advocating for minority voices in the technology sector. And, and what does Tech UK do? What's its brief? So Tech UK is a trade body. It uh, encompasses uh, over 900 member companies across the UK and we create conditions for the technology industry to thrive. So mostly my job is about poking the government in the eye and making sure that we get great conditions for the industry to become part of the economic recovery. Thank you. Chris, what about you? Uh, I'm Chris Ensor. I'm one of the Deputy Directors of the National Cybersecurity Centre. So that's part of GCHQ, set up in 2016 to make the UK a safe place to live and work online. My job is uh, called Cyber Growth, which seems a bit of a strange title, but um, I kind of use our expertise and brand to build national capability. So a couple of examples of things like Cyber First, uh, you know, talent about a talent pipeline, Cyber Essentials, doing basics right, and academic sense of excellence for research in universities. So those, those are the kind of things I get involved in. It's great fun. <laughs> it does sound great fun. So it's more about... Rather than keeping the country safe, it's finding the right people to keep the country safe. Is, is, is that it in a nutshell? Yeah, the right people, the right capabilities, the right companies who offer great services, that kind of thing. Lovely. Bethan, uh, Daintree School in, in Surrey is a primary school. What, what, why are you here? Hi there. Um, I've been a head teacher now for over 10 years and I've worked in a number of schools um, across Surrey. Um, I currently work for GLF Schools, which is a large, large academy trust, um, which has over 40 schools across five regions. Um, I'm when I was at university, I actually studied maths and IT, so I uh, have a keen interest in in technology and IT. Um, but also, my background is that I'm a deployable executive head teacher, so um, I would say my main skill set is going into schools that are requires improvement or special measures um, and improving them to be good or outstanding schools. And Daintree, I mean, it, it, looking at looking at it from the outside you know it, it seems to specialize like all schools in as many things as it possibly can but it has got a new science lab hasn't it it's, i know it's called the fizz lab which is brilliant indeed um at daintree it's a fourth form entry um primary school it used to be a junior school and it's converted to a primary school so we're one of the largest primary schools um in surrey with a 104 place nursery we've actually gone down the route of having specialist teachers in the afternoons so we have science teachers and therefore a phys lab we have a creative studio where we teach um the creative subjects and um, technology arts design um, we have a range of um, devices and we have an IT suite, but also um, Chromebooks and iPads that move around the school as well. Um, and then the classrooms that the children are also um, learning in. Thanks. Thanks. James, you, you run TechVets. This is the TechVets podcast. It's your chance to say what you do. Uh, yeah, thank you. And look, thanks every, everyone for coming on. I th I'm really excited about this one. Um, it's going to be a really tough nut to crack um, discussing the topics on hand. Um I think TechVets uh, really sort of fits in, in with this conversation about getting people, getting more diverse talent into, into tech and cyber. And TechVets is exactly about that. It's about taking people from, from the military with their, with their fantastic experience and skills that they develop, and then helping them to establish a career in cyber and technology, breaking through some of the barriers with, you know, trying to articulate what they do on a CV and getting through the interview stage, trying to get into a role 
where actually um, they're already people are already asking for five years experience in, in industry, which they haven't got and, and being able to showcase what they do. Um, so we're having a great deal of success. And I think having served for, for two decades myself and managed to get into into cybersecurity um, in cyber threat, I think uh, I had a wonderful time in my first role when I left. And I, I think there's something really fantastic about technology in general that, that I think so many service leavers can really benefit from. Great. Thank you, James. Now, uh, let's talk about what we're here to talk about. Starting with you, Jacqueline, the the question for Tech UK, it's about preparing and empowering people at the moment. How is Tech UK doing that? We can't, we can't answer this question without the context. And I think the pandemic has got to be a, a topic of conversation. And one of the long lasting effects will be the way it has changed the world of work and also employment prospects, you know, particularly in the young people, actually. I, I understand, you know, veterans as well and, and other minority voices, but almost two thirds of people who've lost their jobs as a result of the pandemic are actually under the age of 25. Um, and for this generation, I think there's a real risk that without coordinated action, and I'm listening to Bethan's introduction about the wonderful environment she's got in her school, you know, but if we don't have that across the country, the economic impact of the pandemic is going to probably be more long lasting than the health effects. And I, so I think that's, that's something to put on the table. And then when we looked at a, a nationwide poll of over a thousand 16 to 18 year olds that we did at the Institute of Coding, you know, more than half believe that the digital workforce lacks diversity. So, and in technology, that really matters because if an algorithm is going to decide whether you get that place at university, that job interview or that loan, we'd better make sure that that algorithm is built by diverse voices. Otherwise, we'll create a world that doesn't work for everyone. So I think, you know, those two things really matter. They are two things. I mean, I think they're they're quite different, aren't they? I'm, one of your themes, which I've, I've heard you talk about before, is de- democratisation of technology, which I think that comes into your, your diversity agenda. As far as the pandemic's concerned, a lot of people have lost a lot of jobs, but tech is still a growth sector, isn't it? I mean, it, it it's, it's not as serious to say that lots and lots of tech jobs have gone you know that there, there's no hope for the youth of today in tech is it no I, I mean i would argue actually that technology skills probably give you the ultimate in portability because every job is now a technology job because i think the stat is something like 90 percent of all jobs require a digital element to them and so it's our it's our opportunity now to drive that skills uh, agenda into the school curriculum and to make it part of everyday life. And that's different from being socially able to play games and things like that. It's also about critical thinking, problem solving, and all of the other things that they're also machines can't do, you know, empathy. Uh, and, and, you know, I think that's where the man and machine equation is going to be one plus one equals 11, I hope. Uh, so, you know, when we when we get that curriculum driving digital skills, but also the softer skills. We, we definitely see it, Jacqueline. You know, we, we, we really do. We see people coming out and, and launching into careers, traditional pathways, followed by people leaving the military into into sectors that, that fine. There's plenty of tech roles there, but into roles that are becoming automated. You know, and I, and I you know, one, I had a chat the other day with someone. We were discussing the sort of things that people were doing when they left. And I remember people wanting to get into things like forklift driving and, and those sort of jobs. And, that, you know, I'm speaking to people now, they're automating those roles. They have robotics. They have stuff now that people, if they don't jump on this bandwagon and, and people like us don't do more to, to, to help that, um, to, to, to really build that sort of digital skills early on in people's lives, then I think really that did that gap the divide between those with and those without those skills is really going to become an issue. And I think that's right, James, because, you know, it's not the rise of the robots that we should worry about, but whether we can reskill ourselves every five years or less. So it's about keeping pace with technology, whatever age you are. I know, obviously, we talk about young people, but this is everybody. It's I'm going to say hashtag lifelong learning here because we all need to keep pace with it, all of us. And we can't afford not to. Otherwise, we will be left behind. Chris, uh, you were talking earlier about uh, talent pathways 
uh, are you hiring at the moment? Uh, and 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 if you are, how how are you hiring? Um, yeah, we we continue to hire because ultimately we have a constant churn. It's not so much of a churn at the moment. Uh, so I run things like Cyber First. So Cyber First is both, both a bursary scheme and uh, an apprenticeship scheme. So, for example, uh, come September, we will be advertising for next year's incoming of apprentices into GCHQ doing cybersecurity. And uh, the Cyber First bursary scheme has now been running for four five years so this year we had about 125 graduates coming through next year we've got about 250 so it, it's all been about thinking a lot further ahead than perhaps we, we used to so rather than sticking at an advert and you know now and thinking oh i'm gonna you know i need some new people you need to think five years time i need people how do i how do i prime that that community so that the people who then apply are are diverse i mean Jacqueline's quite right. You know, diversity is a big challenge. When we started the bursary scheme, um, we were we were largely getting white males applying for it in in large numbers, and the ratio just on gender was about three applicants to 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 one in terms of male to female. And we needed to change that. And we can't necessarily change it ourselves. We have to look at the whole you know education system. There's so many so social you know challenges around around how do you a, get people, more people interested in technology, and then B, get diversity in the people who are interested in technology. So we're having to do work, work a lot harder to, to prime, if you like, the, the, the pipeline that will enable us to continue recruiting and recruit diversity. So, that, so yeah, we are still recruiting, definitely, and, and we need technologists. I mean, we need lots of different people with different skills, but the key thing for us is people who really understand not how to use technology, but how does technology work? So, you know, anybody can put in bbc.co.uk in the browser, but how does the BBC website then appear on your screen? What are all the processes that happen between you typing that in and the website appearing? How does it work? That's the people we're looking for. I think I really loved, I really loved that you mentioned that as well, Chris, because we have so many people as well that we see, they look at a five-day sort of bootcamp course and they look at sort of quick ways into cybersecurity. And I think the key fundamental underlying all of that is that we need to be really generating technologists, people that are passionate about technology, understand how it works. And then as they develop those skills, will we'll become really you know, capable of defending systems, you know, protecting systems in cybersecurity. But the technology aspect, I think understanding the fundamentals and really starting to get, give as many people this, the ability to learn fundamental technology skills is, is absolutely essential. The curriculum, obviously coding came in a few, few years ago and before that the curriculum didn't offer any um, form of technical IT. It was learning the basics, for example, the use of PowerPoint and Word. Well, we've moved away from that now and coding's obviously been introduced, but beyond that the curriculum doesn't allow or doesn't teach the children definitely at primary level to learn those skills. And I would say the children that have those skills are ones that are self-taught at home or who have parents that are interested um, in technology um, and understanding the different systems and structures. So I agree with that point. So Bethan, how do you, um, at the risk of uh, making it sound like you're running a kind of sausage factory, how do you produce skilled 11-year-olds who are not stereotyped, who will be suitable employees for Chris in 10 years' time? Well, I think going back to Jacqueline's point earlier, the first thing is to have the correct resource in schools because all of the schools vary with different contexts, different budgets, etc. I'm fortunate that I'm part of a large academy, so we have an IT team and we have um, a shared budget across the schools where we support one another where necessary. So in all the schools I've worked at, we've been very fortunate that we've been able to um, have the resources necessary. But in the first school that I um, worked in, there was three devices for the whole school school so you know not even a ratio of, of one to one per class so you're not able to teach the children the skills necessary without the correct resources so that's that's point number one um, and then point number two for me is having the, the training in place at the primary school teachers are expected to teach every single subject to be experts in their field and part of the route we've gone down specialist um, provision is because 
I want my teachers to be good at what they do and they can't be good at teaching absolutely every subject. So we're using specialists to teach the areas that they feel most confident at teaching. We have, for example, a GB athlete athlete who works at um, Daintree, Jessie Knight, and she's started to do training for the teachers in physical education because that's where her skill set is. And for me personally, if you had somebody that had these fundamental skills and that had the knowledge and the passion that could come in and deliver some of that expert knowledge to the children, I think that would really make a difference. Unfortunately, budgets don't always allow it, though. Yeah, I think we had a wonderful chat the other day, um, Bethan, about this. And, you know, you could dive into the weeds on this for, for weeks on end. But there is a real challenge. You know, I have two kids myself and I think we, you know, I said to Beth the other day, we're really lucky. We, we, we have the ability to be able to provide them what they need, the laptops they need, the Wi-Fi, you know, the patience to, to help them learn stuff at home and we support them at home. There is a real issue where there are two aspects that, that need to be really looked at um, comprehensively. One is training for teaching, um, for, for the teachers that, that need to be at least well enough equipped to deliver teaching, normal teaching using digital means, which is something that's really come to the fore during COVID. And the other is the, the children uh, and you can't teach everything in school. How can you how can you enable kids to learn remotely? Because this may pop up time and time again if we have spikes um, for, from the pandemic, etc. And and if someone's off, let's say, for a week because they they need to be off school, but they can still do some learning. How do we enable people to keep learning whilst they're at home? I think this is a real issue because without the correct resourcing, without the correct um, support at, at the education level, I sometimes find that I'm almost in a, an ivory tower looking at things from a wonderful strategic perspective without actually diving into the weeds and seeing what the real problems are at the coalface. And there is some privilege, isn't there? We really need true digital inclusion here because 1.9 million households still do not have access to the internet. So yeah. we are looking through a lens of privilege and I, and I really think we have to be, as we move into our digital future, faster than we thought we were going to because of the pandemic. We have this massive dependency, huge adoption, which is great, but the digital divide is growing. We're leaving behind more people and they happen to be the most vulnerable in that socioeconomic sector. So I think we have to be really careful about how we catch up and how we make sure that divide doesn't widen. Um, I think in the workforce, there are over 17 million people who still don't have the skills they need to do the digital jobs that they are being asked to do. And that, that's all quite scary, I think, from a digital divide perspective. Have you got solutions for that, Jacqueline, have you, in, your, in your mind that perhaps don't involve the government spending a lot of money? Well, I think it, you know, so is the cavalry coming on this? I think in part, you know, I do see huge amounts of investment being uh, brought into industry and into the home. We've had skills websites that the government stood up using Institute of Coding courses, for example. So we have been plugging. We've had 800,000 learners in the last two to three years come through the IOC, and that's not nothing. And I think it's because people are preparing for what comes next. I think where we need to perhaps press more is how we get the infrastructure rolled out, how we get broadband everywhere. We shouldn't have to walk up a hill holding our phone up to say, you know, I need to get online. But I can tell you, you know, that happens. So regional inclusion really matters. And I, I heard of, you know, vicars who've put masks up on their spires to en enable their community to, to be connected. It's all very innovative, very connected and collaborative, but we all have to play our part. And I think also it's about neighborliness as well and I think if the pandemic has taught us something it's about our community matters and that you know are we clear about what's happening with the people next door do they know how to access services online can they even type into that browser James you know, I'm not sure that everyone does exactly. know how to do that so you know we do have to think about who we're leaving behind as we gallop towards the future. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at this at the moment, um, the, the digital poverty aspect and, and how we can provide people basic digital skills. And it's not as easy. I mean, developing the training is the easiest part of it. And there's plenty of content out there that's all, all, almost there. But the real complications are 
first and foremost, understanding the user. I mean, we, we pretty much get that. And you could, you could boil that down at a high level to people of working age and people that, that are not of working age, those i.e. that want to, that need more digital skills to, to imp improve employability and those that need just the ability to use everyday services for, for a better life, you know, accessing universal credits, you know, understanding how to use GovUK, for example, um, online banking and shopping. Uh, so if you're, if you're old, you know, an older person that, that's isolated at home, you can still get shopping to your door, for example, and you don't have to go out. Um, and again, healthcare as well is remote or can be remote now. But then the, the most difficult part of this whole process is you can get devices. Companies will donate money for devices. And again, that's easy. Once you get, get to the point of impact where you've got the devices in the hands of these individuals, how do you then manage that process going forward. And that is the biggest, biggest piece of work so far because you need you need people that are volunteers um, because it's very difficult to set up a whole workforce to do that. You need people that are able to manage individuals' use of that, of that device. Um, and it's got to start from absolute zero, lifting up the lap, uh, the, the lid on that laptop and turning it on. And but, but then you can get to the point where you're getting them to understand web pages, HTML, CSS, you know, and things like that towards the end. Um, but that initial bit is difficult. And how do you then also have that assurance um, around around um, the devices, making sure that they're not being sold? If, if someone, you know, if someone is in a difficult situation, you know, are they going to sell that device um, for, for their own for their own means? Are they, is it just going to be broken? You know, there's there's and how challenging is it if someone's got learning difficulties, you know, on top of their, their potentially, um, you know, their, their issue with socioeconomic background. So I think it's such a huge, huge piece of work and so overly complex. James, I think it's a really interesting point because um, the Department for Education provided devices for the children during the lockdown, which was fantastic. Um, but actually what we found is exactly what you've said, that they either didn't have access to internet, so we were either having to phone providers um, who were offering free internet during the period, or we were providing dongles. But even when they did have the access to the internet, like you said, they didn't know how to turn the device on. They didn't know how to connect to the internet. And luckily, the government actually put um, the vulnerable children in the category of key workers. So a high percentage of our children who weren't able to access the devices, we ended up bringing them into school because obviously being at home, they just didn't have the fundamental skills to be able to use those devices. So giving children devices is not necessarily the answer it's a step-by-step -step approach of how to use them and even if you're yeah. parenting classes unfortunately it's often the hard to reach parents that need to attend classes and therefore are reluctant to attend them so it's thinking of an innovative way to try and engage those parents to give them the skills and training they need so they can use those devices are you able to use the voluntary sector as well are you, are you able to use volunteers at all Beth and to um uh, as James says, or are you kind of hidebound by the national curriculum and you just can't move? No, so um, we actually, during the pandemic, I've got a number of, um, we have an inclusion team at school who work with our most vulnerable families. And actually they were doing phone consultations and step-by-step -step guides of how to turn the computer on, how to launch the computer, etc., so the children could get on it. We can absolutely, as long as we have all the correct um, DBS checks and things in place, we can absolutely use volunteers and is a, I, it's about communities working together to tap into that expertise, um, but also knowing what's available in the local community, um, because I don't necessarily think it's promoted or publicised as much as it should be. One of the, one of the challenges that we're, um, we're trying to uh, overcome is exactly that, is, is how do we get more people into the community supporting the schools? Because we run, you know, we've just run our Cyber First Girls competition for, for year eight in, in England. And I can't remember the, the years for Scotland and Northern Ireland as always, but um, it, but it's just before they're picking up their GCSEs. And, and this year, you know, we, we saw we saw digital poverty because we didn't see so many teams because they just didn't have access to, to the devices at home. Um, but even on a good year, you know, even if we weren't in COVID, we still, we only see about, I don't know, 20% of schools in the UK taking part in entering teams. So how do we get more schools engaged? And we did great on media and, and sort of promoting it, but ultimately it needs boots on the ground, you know, people to go into schools to help. So, you know, and where do you look? Well, there's loads of companies around, you know, could companies support the schools around them? There's lots of government departments around the UK, you know, could they support? So so we've been trying to build a partnership programme under the Cyber First banner, which is, and we've got about 130, 140 organisations involved now. And the whole thing is that, that it's, it's 
they don't pay us to be a member. But what we say to them is you need to support students because we've got, I've got 900 odd bursary students. So I need them to support them and give them work placement and things. But I also want them to support the schools around them um, and go out and, and do what they can. And that's their commitment to working with us is that they go and help. And we're thinking of universities. How can how can we get universities to reach out more into the communities around them? So we've come up with something called Academic Centres of Excellence for Cybersecurity Education. So that's where a, a university is teaching great cybersecurity, but is also outreaching into the community. The trouble is there are still quite big areas where you know schools aren't engaging you know if you put a map up and you see where all the schools are you know you see big blank areas and and that's the areas that we need to try and get into but it, it's got to be it's got to be a combination of online stuff but it's also got to be a physical element to it as well because people don't always have access to the to the internet you've got to do it both ways yeah i agree we we we, we have the online aspect and we've really i mean we've mastered that to be perfectly honest and tech vets has probably got an unrivaled community um, it, it's great because it uses so many veterans who have already made that jump um, into tech or cyber and, and some of them 20, 30 years worth of experience. And they, they all give back. They all provide fantastic advice free of charge just because it's a strength of community and, and they like giving back. And that really works. But again, the aspect that we that we can't cover at the moment is is what about those people that, that virtual, that online doesn't really work for them yet and, and that, that boots on the ground is, the, is that sort of next step for us. But a community approach does work. I mean, it really does, because if you've got people who know what they're talking about, that are doing it for the right reason, um, and, they, and they're passionate about giving back, then it really does work. You know, and we have people jump on and ask a question, and within seconds, they've got someone giving them a great answer, really truthful answer, which gets through all of the myths, you know, debunking all the, all the rubbish that you hear, you know, sets them on the right path where they're not believing some of the sales pitches and the, and the, and the snake oil vendors and, and the likes. Um, you know, you can get into cybersecurity 70K average salary and you can do it in five days with this bootcamp course. Um, but what it does, it also sets them a really nice pathway where they understand the skills and the hard work that's needed and the, the technology that may be needed. Um, and, and that's fine. That, that's fine. That works really well. It's now taking that template and trying to find a way of doing that physically and taking it back a notch as well, where it's not talking about getting into network engineering, system admins, or, or maybe cybersecurity core disciplines. It's about how can we then empower people to access digital, to be able to do things like CMS management, you know, administrative roles, um, as well as things like web design and, and you know, digital marketing and various other things that will really enhance their employability. But how do you do that physically across the whole of UK with enough people that's gonna make a difference? Um, and you can only do that with with a federated approach where you have, like you say, these areas are being supported by business and, and actually Positive Transformation Group are doing exactly that. They are, uh, and Dan Brown's done a wonderful, wonderful job there, is starting to corral volunteer philanthropic initiatives with commercial um, entities as well to really start to make something happen. And, and you know, that, I think that's probably the best approach. Chris, can I ask, um, you, you're talking a lot about students who are, clearly heading for university and uh, are going to be graduates are those the people you're interested in um, or, or, or can you go as far as including apprenticeship yeah we i mean we when, when people apply for the cyber first in september when it's open you can you can apply for two pathways one is a bursary one is an apprenticeship um, so, so there are both ways, and I think you know I always use medical analogies because and the medical profession as an analogy because you know i the problem with cybersecurity and technology to a lot of people is they just, you know, it just doesn't, you know, they see a doctor every day, but they don't see many technologists necessarily or cybersecurityists, whatever you want to call them. Um, so there's no real, I think sometimes there's no real feel for what a job looks like in in sort of in that space. So um, for us, it's, it's really about the different pathways in. So whether you're coming in as a, you know, as a paramedic or just a, um, you know, or as a specialist or a GP, a practice nurse, um, they're all different pathways in. So, it, yeah, there'll be some graduates. Yes, there'll be some people coming through because they've got experience from, you know, from work, from being out there or just doing apprenticeships. But I think what we've not been very good at from a cybersecurity perspective is 
showing people what the different pathways are because not all of them are equal and not all of them get you to the same place. You know, if I go on a first aid course, that's great, but I won't be a brain surgeon anytime soon. You know, there's a long journey to be had there and it's, it's being able to map that out so people can kind of go, oh, yeah, if I do these courses and if I do this, that'll get me to where I need to be. Jacqueline, you seem to be um, you know, very much about this, this idea of expanding pathways, um, taking the, the STEM idea and turning it into STEAM. Uh, it, I mean, it, is it fair to say that uh, tech jobs come from too narrow a, a, a strand of, of students at the moment? Would you like to see it widened out? I think we definitely wall ourselves up behind three-letter acronyms, which make us look a bit geeky in the tech sector. And, you know, when you start, though, from that statement that every job is now a technology job, then every opportunity that anyone applies for will have a tech element to it. And my contention is, is that that creates enormously wide pathways for everybody. I think my misery in tech comes from the fact that our, the lack of diversity in it, and it's probably, you know, we don't look like the people that we want to encourage to join the sector. So we just need to be better at widening the narrative and the talk track around the types of people um, who could be successful in technology. And that's everybody. That's, you know, girls and boys and women and men and everybody on all of the diversity spectrum from neurodiversity, which is very much embraced in cyber, for example, um, right up to, you know, gender, we've only got 17% of women in tech and yet women hold up half the sky last time I looked. So, you know, come on, we can do a lot better. And I think we just need to make sure that we advertise the role models that we've got in technology and broaden that appeal. It's not easy. We've been at it a while. But I am worried that, uh, you know, we're talking a lot about education now and it still seems that the word apprentice is kind of slightly dirty compared to the word graduate. I mean, when you're talking about diversity, are you, are you including the, the kind of, is there room for everybody in tech? Yes, absolutely. And, and can I just say, you know, I just had a conversation with the Chancellor about apprenticeships and traineeships. And the reason we love that in tech is because we can get skills into the industry faster. You learn and you contribute faster than you would uh, via a path at university. So I absolutely believe wholeheartedly that we can get people up and running. I mean, I'm, I'm on the board of a company called FDM Group and we take in over a thousand um, young people a year. We take in veterans specifically and women returners and we skill them up between 12 and 16 week training courses. And then we put them onto client sites immediately. So we know absolutely that it works to have skills um, trained in a very short space of time and they contribute really quickly to industry. Bethan, are you under pressure to send children down an academic pathway all the time or are you allowed a, a sort of sense of diversity and achievement? Um, I think historically there was the pressure of um, academic because um, Ofsted was always graded by data and outcomes at the end of Key Stage 2. This has very much changed now and it's about providing the culture capital and that breadth of experience for all children. Myself, I struggle academically. I struggled with my GCSEs and I actually did a GMVQ when I was at um, college because sitting in an exam, writing an assignment is not my skill set. I'm a very practical um, learner. And actually, The Apprentice for me is a really good route to allow those children who are not academic to also be successful. So, you know, one of the missions that we have at our school is that all children are the best that they can be. And it doesn't necessarily mean getting a first at university. It, it, it's in the job that they decide to choose. They are the best that they can be and they have the right attitude and the right worth ethic. And I think as educators, it's our responsibility to teach the children the attitudes and the work ethic they need to be successful in whichever ever career path they choose to take. Um, Chris, does uh, Cyber First get involved in, in curriculum questions as well? 
Um, so we work with with Department for Education. We are working with them at the moment. We're really very much extracurriculum. You know, we're providing um, opportunities. So we provide courses as well as the competition. We provide courses from eleven to seventeen year olds um, in terms of giving them a taste of what's it like to be you know to be cyber cyber to, to be working in cybersecurity. What sort of skills do you need? All that kind of things. So but it's very much it's very much extracurriculum at the moment. But you know, we are. One of the things we have to we have to consider is is we can't do this forever. You can't do extra curriculum forever, and therefore, you know, how do you embed that into into the school system? And that's what we're having the conversation with DFE. But but largely, you know, the tools can actually be there. I think the challenge is, is often if you look at things like GCSE and A level at, in, in computer science. You know, only about sixty percent of schools offer computer science at GCSE. And then it, it falls to about 20% or 25%, I think, at A-level. So that's already throttling back the, the, the kind of technology teaching. And then there's something around for me that I don't think we all agree what digital skills are, because I think they go from just being able to, to turn on a computer and keeping it, you know, and, and being able to use it all the way through to inventing the next 7G technology. All of those are digital skills, but clearly they are very different. And again, come back to my medical analogy, medical skills are very different from first aid to brain surgery. And so being clear what we want from the education system and what we want it to deliver by default, if you like, in terms of you know what people have at whatever age, I, I don't think we've got a, I don't think we've got clarity on it. And certainly the, the definitions of digital skills I see, I sometimes I think we should be we should be hitting higher than you know just being able to maybe program a, a milling machine or something like that we need to be looking for people who will be inventing the next technology that we'll all rely on um, as well as people just being able to use computers properly all that needs to be catered for just to add to that you know i know we're talking about apprenticeships and traineeships and getting skills into the system fast but there is also i wouldn't want to say that universities are not important either though because as we've seen through the pandemic you know we've had massive boost in vaccine progression through the research labs and the amazing works uh, in work ethics and uh working practices of of phds and so on so i don't uh, what i'm saying is i think we absolutely need to widen pathways and apprenticeships and traineeships are important but we also need the longer term yes. university research I Totally agree, because we don't just want diverse talent. We also need to use diverse methods in order to bring diverse talent in. And, you know, this is no different than when you want to attract someone into an industry. You know, we need to move away from just using the traditional interview method, the traditional CV, you know, and the traditional job descriptions and start focusing on how we can really start to enthuse people to really love tech. To You know, it may be that they want to come in and, and defend the UK's um, national infrastructure, but it may be that they want to create something beautiful that society can really benefit from. Um, you know, so, and, and there's everything in between and, and beyond that, as, as, as Chris said. Uh, I think, you know, the, the, the changes now that we're going to make where we're going to have a bit more emphasis on things like space technology, um, you know, again, very, very exciting stuff. And that can include a far greater amount of people with all the supporting roles being involved in that as well. Um, but I think it has to be a diverse approach because there is no one size fits all and everyone's mind works differently and everyone will, will, will take to tech for different reasons. But James, we've only really got the school system to produce the the, the students, the kids, to the people to, to staff this. So how do you improve the school system to to get what you want? Yeah, I suppose that's that's particularly difficult. But I mean, you know, I'll certainly bring Beth in on this one. Um, but there needs to be a, a really joined up approach. It has to be support from government. It has to be support from industry. Um, there has to be community entities that are able to to outreach and support where needed. You know, things like volunteer teams um, in local areas that can help upskill people, you know, run boot camp sessions, you know, and, you know, like like Chris said, the stuff that they do is fantastic. How can we get more support with more people being able to access that sort of stuff? But it needs to be something that is actually nationally recognised that there is at least a core baseline that's being taught and that's a start point because if we're getting people over the first hurdles then you can develop and, and, and improve the, the offer but there has to be the start point and Jacqueline mentioned it earlier that the key thing is making sure we've got access to internet everywhere in the UK access to devices and the basic level of skills everywhere and at that point it's just a case of developing the, the services and the offerings that you provide but you know Beth and I'm sure we'll have um, a much more 
beneficial view on it. Just picking up on the point you mentioned earlier about how we enthuse the children, because interestingly, since the pandemic, there has been more um, holiday clubs and after school clubs um, that have been launched or are running to develop children's IT, coding skills, etc. So I think more children have actually got involved or engaged with technology that perhaps hadn't before so that could be a positive of the pandemic I think you're absolutely right it's about having joined up thinking with the Department of Education because ultimately the only way that technology or children's knowledge of IT or cybersecurity will be improved is through involving it in the curriculum and I think it's about getting the balance right because the national curriculum already is very very cram-packed it's actually you know it's, it's very very full and there's not enough time in the curriculum to teach the maths and English and the government have said we need to do two hours of physical education each week we now need to um, launch the um religious education and the RSE curriculum and teachers are really struggling to fit things into the curriculum and um, as part of actually um, going back to Jacqueline's point the catch-up um, COVID funding we've actually increased our school day for some of our children because it's the only way we can fit in the additional learning and additional lessons so I think if it became part of the curriculum which I think would be a, a, a good move forward it needs to be thought about how it can be incorporated in other aspects of learning and um, Jacqueline mentioned earlier the critical thinking and the problem solving which is very much the way the maths curriculum has gone or is going with the maths mastery and about having that depth of knowledge and that depth of understanding and I think in terms of IT, we need to deepen children's understanding rather than just doing a one hour lesson once a week. It's about embedding it in all aspects of the curriculum so that when you're doing a history lesson, you're still you can be teaching them about security, about how to research on the Internet. And it's, it's part of the whole in cur- yeah. curriculum embedded throughout. I think that's so important and really wonderful to hear, actually. It's it's a way of learning versus the learning itself. And, you know, that's why, you know, Chris and I have been engaged with the Girl Guiding Association, for example. And what's lovely about that is that because it's voluntary, the girls love to go there. They get really enthusiastic about going there to learn. And we've been working on creating STEM and STEAM badges, science, technology, engineering, arts and maths, uh, into um, their their badge earning uh, opportunities. So you can go from consent online, so stay safe online, which is so important for young people, actually for all of us. Uh, And the badges go right up to AI and robotics with, of course, cyber security in between. So, you know, we encourage a lot of our tech vendors to um, sponsor the badges in a particular niche area so that we can put learning together for the girls. And of course, it's very inclusive. So it means it's done offline as well as online because, you know, shock, there is not Wi-Fi in every church hall across the country. Uh, so, you know, it's it's very important way of learning and so exciting to be able to use that in conjunction with, with the school curriculum, Beth, and very heartening to hear. A brilliant idea to involve uh, the Girl Guides and the Scouts and the Cubs by, you know, having having the STEM badges. I think it's a wonderful idea. You've actually just given me some inspiration because um, at Daintree we have activity passports, which are... Um, progressive from reception all the way through to year six but it's a list of skills and tasks and activities similar to a guide badge that children have to work through throughout the year sometimes in class but sometimes out of class and they work towards getting rainbow badges and adding to the different colors of the rainbow um, and I'm going to put onto the key stage two activity passport something around technology and, and similar to what you're doing with the girl guides oh that's that's great that's great um Thinking about conclusions of our chat, is it fair to say we 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 more or less all agree that we should be knocking on the door of the Department of Education to say that tech should be infused into all parts of the curriculum? That 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 you know tech is the it, it it's the future. The government keeps identifying it as the future, and therefore everything on the curriculum should have a tech element. Is is, is that too simple? I think one one point to just comment on is that it is very much about working in collaboration with the Department for Education, but I don't think it should be a quick process. I think it needs to be thought through carefully because I know what I've learned with the pandemic is we had to be reactive to the situation 
and actually the guidance from the Department for Education regarding the amount of online learning, the amount of remote learning didn't come until later on in the pandemic because they were obviously having to find their feet and be reactive as well. So it's easy to say it needs to be part of the curriculum and, and it, uh, embedded across the curriculum, but there are some schools that are still developing their English curriculum and their maths curriculum and it's important they have the fundamental skills there before then adding or adding any further um, aspects of the curriculum. So it just needs to be thought carefully through in order to, to achieve this approach. Um, so I think we've got to be clear what we want to teach as well, um, because I think that, you know, it, it, there's three things for me. It's, how do, you, how do you be secure? Making sure everybody's got the basic tools to keep themselves secure. We already give them tools to keep them safe, but how do we keep them secure? And, you know, things like cyber aware is a good place to look. Um, thinking of a career in technology, how do we embed that so people think about it? And then finally, for those who are interested and we want more to be interested, is starting to build the foundation. We do it in chemistry, we do it in maths, we do it in English. You know, for those, we need the right foundation so they can go on to a career in technology and cybersecurity. It's just being clear what we want, to, what we want to teach people. Chris, Chris, I've always, uh, I've enjoyed some of your chats on online in the past about the, uh, about the kind of the whole sweep of history of, of of tech and tech jobs, and and you've talked about how Bletchley Park produced GCHQ, how you know uh, information assurance has become cybersecurity. Can you can you make a prediction, you know, based on on on, on your experience of of the industry of of where we will be on this subject in five years' time? I, I think I think we're we're on a long journey. Um, and I think, you know, we're, we're starting to realise the things we need to put in place. And we want, you know, one of the things GCSQ is trying to do is to, and, and, and NCSE was trying to, to push the idea of secure by default or secure by design. So a lot of cybersecurity issues come from the fact that things are either made insecure or become insecure at some point. And so how do we make, how do we get rid of that to a large extent? How do we build in, you know, root cause analysis, all that kind of stuff? But that all takes time. So, you know, I've been in this business 30-something years now, um, and it, it the one thing I've learned is it takes time. So in five years, yes, we'll have made some, you know, we'll made some improvements, but in 10 years, 15 years, I think that's the kind of time frame you're looking at to, to change the technology that everything sits on. You know, that, you know, the internet's been around a long time, um, and it's, it's not going to change overnight. It just takes time for these things to happen. James Bethan is probably producing kids who in, I don't know, 15 years time, you will be putting into tech jobs. How would you like to see education change now so that those kids are going to be better placed to take up those jobs? Um, well, I think first and foremost, um, Jacqueline's point earlier um, of, of making sure that we're teaching, we're teaching everyone to understand technology in, in everyday use for everything that they do. Um, and, and therefore, as Bethan said, infusing it across education. I think that helps. Um, I think naturally the MOD is developing its technical capabilities uh, and, and there are more opportunities for people to get into technical roles. We're not going to see that yet. So that takes a while. And even things like you know women in tech programs, it's going to take 10 years for us to see the results of this. Um, so it will take time. Um, you know, we don't have people in the, in the MOD that are coding as a day job um, you know, across the whole breadth. So having those skills in education means that they're already well equipped. It means that they're better able to um, use and implement the stuff through their military careers. But I would just like to see adults coming out of um, education with a really wonderful thirst to get involved in tech, because especially for veterans, it gives them a wonderful purpose um, to be able to be part of something which is either going to protect um, you know, people's the assets, people's online um, profiles, their their their, their um, you know their whole selves, you know their identities, as well as businesses, or to be involved in something that's going to make business or, or the lives of people so much better, it gives you real purpose in life. And I think certainly from a veteran's perspective, that really gives you a mission, something to drive for, something that, of purpose, um, similarly to what you would get working in in the military. So I think. I think if we can give people that ability to become enthusiastic about technology in general, I think that's a wonderful start. Thanks. Jacqueline, uh, I think we're, we're, we're going to try and wrap this up now, but um, uh, I'm going to guess you'll say there are no quick fixes for this. And I have heard you say in the past that, you know, failing is OK. Um, but but what, what, can we, what can we do to create an educational system that creates the, the right people for the right jobs for the future? 
Yeah, there, there, it's multiple things. It's not just one thing, is it? I, you know, I think, firstly, the awareness piece, you know, on cyber, I'm, I'm always amused in the security area that people become much more aware of security once there's been a breach. So, you know, failing does kind of matter in the awareness area of security. Once we've all had our identity stolen or this or that, you know, suddenly we become much more aware of what's going on. And, and interestingly, we invest more in learning and invest more physically in defense, uh, personal defense. So that's true of companies as well, by the way. Um, so I think it's really interesting that we will probably have to go through a lived experience. Um, but I think one of the things that's happened during the pandemic, we, we haven't had just the pandemic, we've had COVID-19, we've had Black Lives Matter, we've had geopolitics you know, rise in such an incredibly uh, difficult way. And those three things coming together have meant that the world has changed fundamentally. And I think it's changed our awareness quite radically. As parents have been you know, schooling with their children at home, as we've all been Zooming with everybody, we've all been more aware, more adoptive of online living as well as online working. And I think this means that we absolutely need to have more skills. Everybody is involved in the tech industry now. And, and I think that it means that, you know, that's why at the Institute of Coding, we've had so many more learners um, want to understand how to do a little bit more and a little bit more. And, and I think what it will mean is that our learning modules will be more bite-sized, more accessible versus longer term. And, and, and I'm gonna say the word less academic, Beth, and I hope you won't explode at that. But I, I mean that in the sense that they're more, they're more absorbable into everyday life and living. And I think those building blocks that we all take personally will really matter. And as I said before, I think lifelong learning is one of the things that we all need to take away now because we've all had to learn how to Zoom and Microsoft Teams and Google Hangout and all of that stuff. And we've, we've in tech, we've seen adoption go through the roof that would have taken 10 years. So does the pandemic in one way have a silver lining? I think it has in terms of tech skills and tech awareness. So I'm coming away from this being more optimistic, not less. And just picking up on your point, Jacqueline, I think now is the time to launch um, people's or improving people's awareness of tech because people have had to learn on the spot because, because of the pandemic. And I think you mentioned about having, you know, it, it being more absorbable for the children. I think doing things little and often and more frequently, it just becomes part of their daily practice. And um, yeah, I think now would be the time to perhaps try to get in contact with the Department for Education and look at how um, this can be um, used in the curriculum or incorporated in the curriculum. Well, there you are. We'll all have to go out and develop some tech muscle memory. Thank you so much, Jacqueline, Chris, Bethan and James. Thanks for joining us. For our listeners, you can find out more about TechVets and how to become a member by visiting techvets.co or searching for TechVets on LinkedIn. If you're a business owner or work for a company in the tech industry and want to find out how to get more veterans into your team, drop James Murphy a message via LinkedIn. You'll find all the contacts you need in the description for this post. We'll be back in May with our next TechVets podcast. Thanks for joining us.